Linguistic Archie. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how are you today? I wish I could say that uh, I'm back up to full speed, but this cold and flu just won't let me go. Thus, uh, the delay in getting this week's program out to you. And I know that uh, many of our fellow Saloners have also been fighting the flu, and I sincerely hope that everyone, including me, I might add, uh, hope all of us recover soon. We've got kind of a long program today, uh, but before I jump into it, I want to give a huge thank you to some people who have made uh, donations to the salon recently. And they are Dr. Laura, Garth A., and our old friend and frequent donor, a dime short, who is uh, going to continue being a dime short if he keeps this up. I really appreciate all of your help in keeping these podcasts winging their way to thousands of people in over a hundred countries. Your donations are the backbone of the program, and uh, you can rest assured that you're doing more than your part in supporting our psychedelic community. So thank you one and all. Our talk today comes from Eric Davis, and it is the plyologue he conducted at the 2007 Burning Man Festival. As you know, uh, Eric has been a featured speaker here in the salon on several occasions, and I should point out that if you've never had the opportunity to hear Eric in person, you should definitely go out of your way to do so. He not only has one of the best minds to be found in our psychedelic community, he is also a very engaging speaker and uh, great to be around in person. So you might want to go to his main website, which is www.technosis, that's T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S, technosis.com. And Technosis, by the way, is the title of one of his more important books. And on his website, you can find out where he'll be appearing in the future. And hopefully uh, some of our fellow saloners will track him down and attend one of those talks and uh, send us a report on the current state of Eric's thinking. In the plylogue we're about to hear, uh, which Eric titled The Imagination and the Environment, one of the things he points out is the obvious, uh, yet seldom thought about fact, that the future doesn't just happen, it's created. And you and I, along with over six billion other humans, are directly involved in creating a small piece of that future. And when you think of it that way, uh, particularly if you're thinking about the future of your grandchildren, All of a sudden, our responsibility as thinking beings to help create a better future for our species becomes quite clear. Now, I have to warn you ahead of time that there is one spot in this recording where the sound quality drops way down to uh, barely listenable. And after hearing that, uh, I booted up the DVD of the talk that John sent me uh, to make sure we didn't just have a problem in lifting the sound from the video. But uh, that's the way it is in the original video recording. And looking at it, uh, I notice that the tapestry behind Eric is blowing all over the place, which means that uh, there was some bad weather outside at the time. But the problem seems to be in the uh, feed from the mixing board. And if I remember correctly, uh, what happened was that we lost power to the generator, and so the sound system went down, and John had to switch to the built-in microphone on his camera. So you're going to hear it much like those who were there at the time heard it, and that means uh, there's a lot of wind in the background that makes it a little hard to hear at times. 
What is pretty amazing when you think about it, though, is that uh, even when we lost power and even when the storm intensified, Eric never missed a beat. And uh, there are very few people who can perform under conditions like that. So uh, a big thank you goes out to Eric, who is a real professional in every sense of the word. Fortunately, these problems uh, only last for about five minutes, so the entire recording isn't that way, but uh, I think that what Eric had to say that day is important enough for us to bear with the sound problems and pull out some of the ideas he presented that afternoon. If you've been hanging around the psychedelic salon for a while now, you already know that almost all of our Burning Man lectures have some kind of technical problems, and at first that was uh, driving me crazy. But now I've come to accept the fact that the gods of the playa simply aren't willing to let us uh, have an easy time of it. And please don't think that I added some strange musical background about halfway through Eric's talk. What you're hearing is actually coming from the camp next to us. The bottom line here is that uh, maybe Burning Man isn't the right place to hold these talks after all, at least uh, from the standpoint of making recordings of them. And here I want also to give my personal thanks to one of the true backbones of the psychedelic community, John Hanna. At last year's burn, we had a professional recording deck along with two MP3 recording backups, and yet none of them actually worked. But without being asked, uh, John set up his video recorder and recorded all of the plylogs. All but his own, of course, which is a terrible tragedy because of the importance of his talk. Hopefully we'll be able to recreate it one day. But, as his time permits, John has been stripping the audio from these videos for us to use here in the salon. And without him stepping in to fill our technological gap, uh, all would have been lost. So, uh, please help me in thanking John Hanna. And not just for today's podcast, but for everything he does, every day, to further the cause of our community. Now let's uh, return to the playa at the 2007 Burning Man Festival and join our little group in the big yurt at the pod cluster as I introduce Eric Davis. Some of you have been here a couple days and know kind of what we're doing, that basically uh, this year we decided that we wanted to go back to our original idea of sort of the uh, vibe at the end of the pool at the Sean Ka Hotel after the uh, in Theobotany seminars and encourage more intimate discussions. And we've been very pleased to know that uh, most of our speakers who last year were speaking to a crowd of a thousand have uh, agreed to come out and speak to a more intimate gathering. And uh, Eric Davis, who is here now, is uh, without Eric, we would never have had the Palenque Norte lectures. Uh, when I came up with the idea in 2003, he was the first guy I contacted, and he said, well, that's kind of crazy. I, th I think I'll give it a try. And because I got Eric on board, the other people all signed up. So... Uh, uh, Eric has had a lot to do with this. He's, uh, he came to my mind, my notice first, uh, through Terrence McKenna. I was telling Terrence about a book I was writing, and he said, well, you shouldn't write anymore until you read Technosis by Eric Davis. And, and I did, and he was right, and I've cited it in there. So uh, he has a, a new book out that came out last year called Visionary State that has some of the most beautiful photography you've seen that's only surpassed by the prose that accompanies it. So uh, a couple great books. So if you would, please help me welcome Eric Davis. So I guess we have about an hour here, and I want to thank, you know, Lorenzo, as always, for really initiating these talk spaces on the playa. And even more than that, recognizing, in my opinion, what's 
a little bit missing about the larger t- traditional lecture spaces that have kind of ballooned in the years since he started Palenque Norte. In my experience, and this is just my experience, the satisfying talks I've given here have always been small and interactive. Uh, and that the larger ones, I've done a couple larger ones, they, they're too much like the outside world for me. So I was very happy this year to, to have an opportunity to still do this, which is kind of like my gift or my my you know offering to the playa, but in a way that I find much more simpatico. I love dialogue. I love guided you know conversation. So probably what I'm going to do is uh, talk for... I don't know, 20 minutes, half, you know, half hour, roughly around that time, and then, and then open it up more, you know, probably more like 20 minutes. And I don't have anything planned at all. Uh, I have, I, had, I, out of the thin air, I pulled the idea of uh, nature and the imagination, and I said, well, that's vague enough that I'll be able to, you know, come up with something before. And uh, you know, in the outside world, I don't, I don't try to, I pre- try to not prepare my talks too much. Just sketch out a few notes, a few ideas of places I want to go. But I usually have a fairly good idea beforehand of what I'm doing. But because it's the playa and I'm crispy as hell, and I'm, you know, it doesn't really matter, and I'm with all of you, I'm, you know, just going to riff for, uh, a little bit, talk about just some things that have been, been on my mind. And if it seems sometimes a little tangential, I, I, I hope that it, that the, the connections will, will pop up uh, eventually. The whole matter of inf- uh, the imagination in the environment, I think, is a really key discussion on a number of different levels, and I'm going to try to talk about a couple different dimensions of it, but I want to throw out the basic thesis, and then I'll talk about the terms or whatever, which is that the imagination, and I'll talk more about what I mean by that, that the imagination is a key and pivotal interface between human beings and the natural world that uh, understanding, appreciating, nurturing the creative imagination, uh, learning how it works, um, diving into it, pulling back from it, is part of the way in which we weave ourselves into the world. And that any kind of restorative, sustainable uh, renewal of our planet has to exist on the imaginal realm as well as the realm of technical solutions, political uh, developments, uh, technological fixes, all, all sorts of, you know, it's a multidimensional problem. So that's one aspect of it. And the other thing I want to talk about, though, is kind of almost the, the opposite side of it, is that I see, particularly in the sort of, whatever you want to call it, progressive, new age, psychedelic, entheo, neo-pagan, freak, uh, eco-movement thing, uh, this hydra-headed, g- glorious green beast, that there are some fundamental errors that people make repeatedly that have to do with the imagination that I think get in the way and that are, are even harmful in the extreme, uh, but in the, in the near term are uh, confusing. And that basically has to do with taking the imagination and the works of the imagination and the experiences of the imagination too seriously to taking them too literally, taking them too concretely. And it's, I think it's, a, it's an error that comes up for very understandable reasons, uh, but has, I think, a lot of problems with it. So those are the basic kind of zones where I'm going to go to, and I'm going to go back and talk about uh, the imagination, what I mean by the imagination. 
in, in a way, it's a kind of unfair term because we all sort of use it, but we don't really have a sense of what it, what it means. And it's one of those words or concepts that people have projected any number of different definitions on. And in some ways, I like to keep that open. I don't mean one thing by the imagination. I mean many things by the imagination from the point at which you say, oh, no, that's just your imagination, meaning it's not real. You're hallucinating it. You're projecting it to a kind of romantic idea of the imagination. You know, when the romantic poets emerged in the early 19th century, Blake and Coleridge and Wordsworth in the, in the English language, but the whole romantic movement was an extremely important 19th century development in, in European uh, thought and culture. And one of the ways of, ex of explaining what happened with the Romantic movement was that it was a reaction to scientism. It was a reaction to the over-rationality of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment comes along and says, hey, man, we're figuring out this science stuff. Human reason's pretty cool. You know, we don't actually need to accept the inherited structures of medieval reality, whether it's the church or princes or... Uh, you know, old medicine that doesn't work, old science that doesn't work, that all of these things can be changed in, a, in an essentially secular or anti-Christian way, in many ways, that these things can be challenged because we have reason and we have the ability to build systems and science and to be clear about why things happen. And it's really that, that idealistic movement of the Enlightenment that gets going the modern world, modernity, the world that we live in, the world of capitalism, the world of technology, the world of electronic media, that that all kind of emerges from the matrix of the Enlightenment. The Romantic movement in the 19th century was kind of a reaction to this, and one of the key elements of it was this great emotional feeling about nature. So that what you find in a lot of romantic art and literature and philosophy is an idea about nature that is more mystical, more poetic, not particularly rational. So it's this tremendous resource inside of the Western tradition, inside of our own Euro-American background that uh, kind of lays the groundwork for this engagement with um, nature through the imagination. So what, what more can we say about the imagination? So now I've said it's like that on a simple level where you see something that's not there. You visualize something that's not there. Then it's this whole kind of cultural movement. Well, then there's a kind of deeper way of talking about it, too. Uh, Immanuel Kant, who was a key philosopher of the Enlightenment, had an idea that the imagination is the faculty in us that synthesizes the multiple modalities of perception and conception into a single reality. So even though we have all these different senses, taste and touch and sight and sound, and then we have all these different cognitive dimensions as well, we more or less perceive something like a, a, a synthetic world, a unified world. We're all part of a, of a flow of all of these things happening together. And he said the imagination was that human faculty that allows all those different dimensions of experience and perception to cohere into something like our experience. 
So the imagination is really the core, the source, the, the matrix of our multidimensional experience. And the part about this that I really like is that the imagination is synthetic. I don't mean synthetic like artificial. I mean that it synthesizes. It brings together different dimensions and different modalities into something like a whole, to something like uh, you know, an, an image or an idea that can draw in these different aspects of, of being. So that's another important aspect of the imagination. And finally, I want to talk about something that I could call the creative imagination. And here's where we really get into stuff that's, I think, key about spirituality, about psychedelic experience, about uh, non-ordinary experience, and in ways that I think are really uh, important uh, right now in terms of environment, in terms of the development of, of media and such. So what do I mean by the creative imagination? What do I mean by the creative imagination? Well, we can think about something like, what is a work of great imagination? What's, a, what's something, like, what do you, when you think of like, I mean, that is, it has extraordinary imagination to it. What's, Moby Dick, sure. Lord of the Rings. What's that? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's very Burning Man. In fact, one of the ways of talking about Burning Man is that it is this explosion of the creative imagination on all these different levels. You know, every camp, every image, all these masks, all these art cars, it's stimulating this kind of immense world of the collective imagination. You know, Jung might talk about it in terms of archetypal symbolism or the, the archetypal imagination, that part of our minds that are, are not personal, but work on that larger level of myths and dreams. You know, sometimes you have dreams that are really ordinary and you're just kind of wandering in the city and you're anxious and you can't get something done and somebody takes something from you. And those are just kind of very ego scatter dreams. And then you have these other dreams that maybe the colors are clearer. Maybe there's more of a myth structure to them. You feel like you've actually encountered something. You see a being. You, you go to a, a, a magical world. These are kind of the signatures of this larger world of the creative imagination, which you can think about in Jungian terms. But I want to keep it more open. I want to keep it more creative. And that's kind of my key idea here, is that the creative imagination is incredibly important in our personal lives, in our, in our visualization of, of, of a possible future or possible futures, in our understanding and experience of spirituality, but that it's creative, like we say creativity, like with music, like with art, like with poetry, not like religion. Or rather, there's an aspect of religion that is like the creative imagination, but only an aspect. And that in one way of even describing what happens with religion is that the creative imagination becomes concretized and dogmatized into a system. And then people use it as a fixed model of reality to guide their senses of what's going on. I think that in some ways this can be very helpful. I think in some ways we all do this, even if we think of ourselves as being secular or open-minded or not religious at all. At the same time, I think that, that what I'm just saying is the, is the fundamental error I see with a lot of this culture, is that people are plugged into all these sources of the creative imagination, whether it's you know ayahuasca, uh, different myth systems, um, different spiritual practices from parts of the world. You know, even this, you know, this is a myth system. This isn't reality. It's a, it's a, it's a work of the creative imagination, but not in the sense that it's just illusion. Not in the sense that it's just, you know, something somebody made up one day and everybody believed it. It's that the creative imagination functions in a different way than religious beliefs allow us to engage with. And that's kind of the key 
message about how to engage this world. So what's, an, what's a good example of this? Let's take the current growth, a really remarkable growth of ayahuasca religion. And I say ayahuasca religion. One of the fascinating things about the introduction of ayahuasca into the West is how much it is, con- it is kept a hold of an essentially religious or ritual framework. You know, unlike mushrooms, unlike LSD, which had those dimensions, people took them in those ways and continue to take them in in those ways. But for many people, the encounter with these substances has to, you know, is in a very random situation. It's at Burning Man. It's at a Grateful Dead show. It's with a bunch of your friends when you're 15 in a field somewhere. Ayahuasca is different. Ayahuasca comes with it, packaged with it, if you will, a kind of ritual structure that has the potential to become an actual religious formation. But to me, it's really, really, really important to make that distinction between the creative ritual and the religious formation, the the way that things become religion. So what's an example? What's an example? So you have, you know... You go to an ayahuasca ceremony from from the deepest heart intention. You want to clean your life so that you can become a channel for light and for improving the world. And you go and you have whatever, an encounter with a a snake being, or you have an encounter with the jungle. You have an encounter with the the sort of creative other world of light beings, whatever it is. Now, that's great. That's amazing. What juice. It's like having one of those dreams that you wake up with and you feel like you've actually learned something, that you've actually changed. How remarkable that you can just have an experience that changes you like that. But then it's the next day. You're back in the world. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you concretize that? How do you bring that into your life? How do you integrate that into your life? And one of, one of the things I'm saying is I think there's that whole integration thing is, is difficult. People want to integrate with it to, around an answer. Who I do? Who am I? What is the nature of reality? But I don't think it works that way. I don't think the creative imagination, by that I very much mean the realms one encounters in intense altered states, whether through meditation, whether through trance work, whether through vision questing, whether through infusions, in any situation. The material you encounter there is of the stuff of the imaginary. It is both full of meaning and full of imagery, full of history and tradition and the patterns of human thought and human experience, but it is also empty. It's also pixie dust. It's also fairy tale. It's not what you think it is. And by trying to concretize it into a belief structure, into a way of organizing your life, I think that sometimes, not always, but sometimes we, we trip over it, we make a mistake. And one of the ways of thinking about the mistake is that we want it to be, again, we want a single re- reality. We want a single explanation. When the reality is, the reality is multidimensional. We strive for integration. We strive for coherence. The coherence and integration are not in the field entirely. Parts of it are, parts of it are a chaos, a multiplicity, many different perspectives commingling, crossing each other, and we move between them. We move against them. We're, you know, Burning Man, you can talk about it from a purely economic perspective now. It's very obvious that this whole thing is being transformed because of money. You know, living in the kind of culture we do, we are encouraged and we have the capability of seeing everything we do in terms of consumption and money. Everything. Everything. But that's not the only reality. That's not the only thing that's going on. And you can go up layers and layers. You have apology, 
politics, personal experience. And you get these different models, and then it's like, what do, you, what do we do with that? We want integration. We de desperately want integration. And that's part of what we do, I think, is to integrate. But we also embrace chaos. We also live with ambiguity and uncertainty. And we will always live with ambiguity and certainty as long as we are in an even remotely human world. I think the other realms are full of ambiguity and uncertainty. One of my strongest sort of, uh, uh, you know, visions of, 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 you know, the other world was that, you know, and this is sort of a common science fiction story that you come across. It's self a good sign that these spiritual and mystical experiences sometimes seem a lot like, you know, science fiction, like fantasy, like the stuff of the human imagination, not necessarily reality. One of these visions was like, you know, the Earth is, is just about to become conscious, and all these interdimensional beings are hovering around the planet, and you know they're they're watching us go through this gestation process, and we're going to be born into this new cosmic consciousness. But that cosmic consciousness, actually, it's kind of a lot like Burning Man. It's like full of all these weird characters who are, have their own stories about reality, their own perspectives, and they're trying to draw you into their trip. Do you want to go with these people? Maybe you just need to make alliances. It's a tricky world. You don't get the answer. You don't. Ah, now I've achieved God consciousness, and we can just drift off from eternity. It's actually, it continues to be the same world of difference and ambiguity, multiplicity, and that that's what the shamanic world is about. The shamanic world is not about encountering the great goddess who's going to give you the message about what you should do. The entering that, the, that realm is to become accustomed to the way that multiplicity and ambiguity and different ways of looking at the world are manifest on that level as well as this level. There's a great, great story that Michael Harner tells. Michael Harner was an anthropologist, straight anthropologist, went to Colombia, Venezuela. I'm, I'm blowing it, but uh, I studied the Hibaro, so I don't know where the Hibaro. Correct. They're in Ecuador. They're in Ecuador. Okay, so he so uh, so he's studying with the with the Hibaro, and um, he's you know young guy. He has his first ayahuasca experience, and during his ayahuasca experience, he encounters these tall, evil, black-winged bat creatures who say, ah, yes, we are the lords of the realm. Praise fealty to us. And he was freaked out, freaked out. He, you know, wakes up the next day, whatever, a couple days later, a week later, he runs into some missionaries. And he tells them their, his story. And they're like, yeah, man, that's, you know, that's devil stuff. You're entering into the realm of devils, and you are seeing the fallen angels. The fallen angels who rule that world. That's one reality. That's one aspect of the creative imagination. Never think that Christianity is weak on the imagination. Not at all. The astral realms are full of all of the forms of human culture and imagination. So anyway, he gets this download, and he's like pretty freaked out, right? It's kind of intense, kind of intense. So then he goes to the shaman, and he's like, yeah, this, you know, I met these black-winged bat demons who said they ruled the realm, and he goes, oh, those guys? Ah, they're always saying that. <laughs> so right there, you see that difference, you know? You see that difference. For the shaman, they're just some characters that are in this multidimensional realm, and what you learn as a shaman is a kind of amoral, not, not a good, not a bad, but an amoral way of moving through and engaging this very complicated world with many things that are, that are going on. And I'm happy to stop here for, for, for the sir over there. Do you want to get him on a mic? We're trying to get the generator going. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
All right, pauses. We have a question. Hello. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm trying to understand. Are you suggesting that in the imaginal world, these experiences, there is no real progression? There is no real, like for instance, if you go into different traditions, they talk about evolutionary stages of development. The Kabbalah talks about levels of the angels and so on. Are you proposing that in this imaginal world there is not, in fact, a real game going on for the evolution of the human spirit and soul? Or is it possible there is something real going on and that we all, all roads lead to Rome, so to speak, and there is a process that, for lack of a better word, we might call the attainment of enlightenment? Great question. Great question. What I want to do with that question is just show... Like, I feel that I ask the questions the same way. Like, you know, is this just a constructs of our consciousness because we're, pro we're programmed apes with culture, and so we think in symbols and ideas, and so in these realms, our own, you know, programming is kind of fed back to us in this intensified state that we misidentify as spiritual or mystical or true. And on the other hand, you say, but what if it's real? I mean, what if it's, like, real? Like, all of this stuff that we're encountering is an invitation to progress and to evolve. And what I'm trying to encourage is a space in between those two. It's a space of holding lightly the claims of these other realms. And part of that comes about not because I don't think that there are, w are ways that the imaginal world leads you to, ev to evolve, to grow, to encounter one realm and then move on to an an another realm, like the idea of the bardo, or the idea of Dante's Inferno, or the idea of levels in the Kabbal Kabbalistic system. Or let's just say the true unity of, of all of, the true unity of humanity, the unity of the universe, the uh, eternity of non-being, these things that we can read about in different traditions. And if we're fortunate enough, have moments to glimpse them. Right. Yes. Is, is there reality is what I'm asking. Right. I, I guess uh, in a way that actually brings up a slightly different question, which is that I think a lot of times in because of uh, for a lot of good reasons that we have a, a sort of inclination to seek that that unity, that sense of, of uh, the oneness beyond beyond form that's eternal. And that, you know, some systems place a great deal of emphasis on that, you know, Hindu Tantra in many ways. Uh, but the, the imaginal realm is kind of a different, it's a median, it's a middle place. It's not the it's same a, as what I'm talking no, about. No, it's not the same as what you're talking about. Um, I think that what you're raising are, in a way, it's a different discussion. Um, and it's more difficult, in a way, to, 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 to get wrap language around some of the things you're talking about. And I do believe that the imagination is, again, an interface to those dimensions that are so beyond normal human consciousness that we're not really able to get our hands on them. But we can get our hands on Kuan Yin. We can get our hands on a rainbow bodhisattva. We can see a, a tanka in, in, on, a, on an image integrated into our visual imagination and use that or have that arise inside our minds as a guide. And that in many ways what these traditions are doing are training our imaginations in order to be able to engage with this world. My personal, I won't even say hunch, I won't say belief, but my operating story is that all of that material becomes remarkably available to us when we pass. I don't know this. 
perhaps when we die, we simply snuff out. But I want to suggest something to you that I think is, is, is profound, which is that, take again, you know, there's this multidimensional reality. We have to look at things from multiple perspectives, where there's mystical oneness, where there are bat-winged demons, and where there's just meat and DNA. Sorry, guys, nothing. It's just science. We're a, we're a rock in an, em, you know, an empty, meaningless universe that's just spitzing through its reiterations, which to me is as, is as a strong message I get from the other realms as religious or more spiritual messages. I also get it, an aimless creativity that is both remarkably fecund and empty and meaningless. If that may be saying something about my personal background, but that's partly what I see. So we have to look from that perspective, too. And that's one of the things, if we're into integration, if we're into integration right now with science and technology, that means that we can't avoid that skeptical voice. We have to engage and learn to integrate that skeptical voice as well. It's our job to just say, no, those science people, they don't understand. They're locked in rationality. It's actually this mystical world, this magical world, is a profound failure, in my opinion, of our role. And the more we go into loosey-goosey mystic New Age stuff as a concretized belief system rather than as an open, playful world that, that adds richness to our lives the way that poetry does or the way that uh, religious imagery does, drawing us to those higher realms, but holding them lightly so that we can still engage a skeptical materialist. For me, that's what integration means. So let's take this the model. The hard model is... You die. You're just a meat machine. You go down. When your brain stops working, that's it. But, but, what happens when the brain dies? I mean, what does that feel like? I mean, presumably something feels like something, unless we're completely blotto. That something feels like something when that brain goes. So let's just suggest, as an operating possibility, that we do just die as, as you know, DNA robots, but on the way down, on the way down, the entire apocalyptic, revelatory expression, explosion of all of consciousness and creation occurs to us individually. Each person's death is the last judgment, is the final revelation, is the injection into the multidimensional cosmic field. And that part of what, and maybe at the end there is some spark that passes on, I cannot say. But in a way it doesn't matter. I mean, don't you want to be ready for that? Don't you want to be like, okay, ready to ride? Let's check this out. Let's see what we can do as we shut down or as we you know, hurdle into these dimensions. And that even something like Burning Man is very much about that. It's Bardo training. You know, you don't, there's all these portals. You don't know what to go. There are these blinky lights and these strange creatures. And, you know, what am I motivated by? Is, am, I fe- am I hungry? Am I fearful? Am I, am I on a dark trip because I lost my lover along the way and I don't know what's going on? Or am I able to ride? Am I able to engage the people who are on an individual level? Ah, this person, I'm going to hang with them. I'm going to have a resonant connection with this person or this place is what's drawing me. What is the intu- intuition that draws you, draws you into those things? Uh, and so for me, uh, this, qu- this way of looking at death is for me this, a personal, and I'm not suggesting it for you, a personal solution to the problem of religious and spiritual practice. Because I don't care if it's not true. I don't care if it's just a belief system. The skeptic to me is like, sorry guy, I mean, maybe, it, maybe I'm wrong, but why not? Why not prepare for that last 12 seconds or 20 seconds or minute and a half? 
the, of, of the entire universe going up in some explosive, remarkable you know, wonder. So for me, that is a way of integrating uh, these different dimensions about religion, about mystical experience, and about the, the reality of scientific explanation, the reality, the tremendously productive engine of creation that is technology and science, that is exploding at remarkable rates, and that will continue to drastically transform our material experiences unless we just, you know, you know go down in a, in a, in a pile of, of embers. So... That, to me, is like uh, this expression about the creative imagination. And I know I've been, I've been going on a little bit, and I'll do one more little final link, which is to bring it back into the question of, of ecology and environment, which is really, you know, in, in many ways what we're doing this year. And I'd love it if some of the questions or people's comments, I'd love to hear people's comments about the green theme this year. I'd love to be able to riff on that because it's something we've all shared together. We all have our perspectives on. And I think it's a really, this question of environment and imagination and creativity is a really interesting way to look at this uh, look at this year but what I want to say is that just as the uh, you know tantric deity the Bodhisattva can be seen as a kind of interface almost like a you know a visual interface panel that you're navigating in order to engage these higher realms that are very difficult for human beings to to experience directly that so too does the imagination offer us an interface with the earth just the earth the material earth we grow up in the earth as you know post apes evolving and as culture evolves as we learn to sort of separate ourselves in this weird way from nature so that even if we question the terms we can all existentially recognize the difference between nature and human civilization we might go oh yeah ultimately it's all one thing it's just like ants building an anthill maybe but i think that all of us have a sense that there's some kind of tension there there's some kind of difference but as human culture became created, it's being created absolutely in the context of, of nature, of the flows and patterns of weather and animals and beasts and life and death and smoke and clouds and dust and the whole material reality. And that much of what we yearn for and why we turn to paganism, why we turn to uh, you know, entheogenic experience, why we turn to fantasy literature, why we you know, turn to all of these things is because we have a longing to restore that interface, that connection between human culture and nature. You know, you're not going to get the great goddess telling you what you're going to do. What you're going to do is stir up this big witch's brew of the imagination, icons, images, strange synchronicities, weird patterns at the edge of your field of vision, maybe even crop circles. But don't go around thinking the crop circles are real and made by higher consciousnesses that are here to do X or Y or whatever the guy who's telling you about crop circles thinks. See the crop circle as this expression of the creative imagination, that interplace between human culture and nature, between our minds and souls and the greater cosmos. For me, that perspective gives you a lightness that, that avoids some, some problems, which we can talk about if you want, but also opens us up for the multidimensionality of things, not to seek a single answer or a resolution, but to be able to be comfortable in that space 
of multi-dimensional realities with the image, with all of this, uh, you know, tremendous kind of richness, a kind of poetic approach rather than a religious one. And I think that approach is the way that is most likely to allow us to integrate these higher dimensions, mystical dimensions, imaginary uh, dimensions, full-on religious experiences, whatever you want to talk about it, they will allow us to integrate it into the larger world, the world of media, the world of technology, the world of tremendous pressure, tremendous change, tremendous terrifying things going on, rather than going off in our own bubble and saying, okay, well now I've got my answer and it's about this other way of looking at the world, but to throw ourselves back into the chaos and in the stew with this deeper, richer sense of uh, a collective imaginative force. So I think I'll stop there. I, I, you know, I try to throw a bunch of stuff out there so that people get all juiced up and start talking. So, uh, questions, queries, comments? Oh, come on. I know. Green man, what do you think? Dumb? Cool? What about burning the man? Let's, let's, let's get the, you know, obvious stuff. Burning the man, how'd you feel? Were you here Monday night? What did that do for you? Nobody. All right. What's that? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a very interesting way of, um, you know, again, this is just my my opinion, but a way in which what to me Burning Man is about really fundamentally has been misunderstood by the theme and more particularly the rhetoric around. You know the the green ecology, industrial development that we see here, and so here's the basic idea: that uh, Burning Man is essentially about useless expenditure, excess, waste. You know, we're like, oh no, wait, oh wait, that's not green, that's not eco, that's not what we're about now. And you're like, that's a good impulse, it's a healthy impulse, but it also ignores to me something profound about human societies through all situations that uh, is both de delicious and delightful and very dangerous and scary and weird. And what that is, uh, is the idea that in, in human culture, there's always kind of an excessive force. There's like too much desire or too much productivity. There's a, an excess in our our evolution. Yet we're moving forward. We're constantly changing, and there's kind of a too muchness, and we don't know what to do with it. We can't just sit with it. So we have to burn it. We have to destroy it. We have to sacrifice it. And this is the the deep meaning of sacrifice. That sacrifice is more important than the gods. Some anthropologists even say we invented gods to explain why we sacrifice, why we take things that are of value and use that we either find, that are rare, that we put human labor in, and destroy them in a festival of joy and Dionysian excess. Why do we keep doing that? And if we don't do it old school style, you know, dancing around a fire, guy with horns comes out, gets a little kinky, whatever it might be, if we don't do it that way, we do it with war. Or we do it with the absolute insane pressure on all of us individually that, that is laid upon us by, you know, consumer capitalism, where we're constantly consuming in this, like, endlessly excessive way. And that one way of talking about why capitalism won and why it works 
is because it is the system of production and reality transformation that is most keyed to this need, neurotic, mad, glorious, to, to expend uselessly, to have too much and not to know what to do with our too much. And so what happens out here, what grows out here, what has grown out here throughout the entirety of the festival, not just in recent years, is this incredible waste. You know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars burned, spent in, in this goofy, hedonistic, you know, tacky, amusing, kind of empty, kind of crass, kind of glorious festival of, of madness and craziness and, and, and human creativity. And so, great. I think that's one of the things we're doing here. And I think it's, and the, the, the difficulty of that is what's glorious about it. The way that we have to look at it and go, God, this is kind of absurd. I can't believe I just like spent a month preparing for this crazy thing and all this money. And then I come out here and it's like, what am I doing? Like, that is part of the the lesson of it. That's the transmission of it. And that comes when we look at this green theme. So the problem with the green theme to me is that it does not acknowledge that dimension of, of uselessness, of unhelpfulness. It wants to capture the creative energy here and say, no, no, this can all go and create solutions for the, the sustainability that we all have to attain. And we've all, we're now all completely infected with all of that idea and all that fear and anxiety that's called up, that we want some technological solution, we want to change the economy, we want to take capitalism and make it green and sustainable and all these things. Yeah, we all share that and I, I recognize that. I think it, it does have to happen. It's obviously something we, we need to do. But again, reality is multidimensional. And one of the other things we do is to deal in a healthy way with useless expenditure. Like the North, Northwest, Northwest Indians who practice potlatch. You know, they, they came from a very... The Northwest Indians were really rich as far as, you know, people in the pre-money world were. They could kick back, reach down in the stream, get a bunch of salmon. You know, the weather's nice. It's very fecund. You know, there's copper. There's a lot of good stuff around there. It doesn't take them too much work to become wealthy. But what do they do with all this wealth? Well, they developed a system of the potlatch where you go and you destroy your wealth magnificently in an almost a kind of game with other people who have wealth. Like, I gave you this amazingly expensive, you know, copper icon, or I destroyed it in your name, or I, you know, what, have a hundred deer, uh, you know, we eat it all at once, I eat all my wealth at once, and now, in a sense, you're obliged in an almost competitive economy to outdo me. This is what we do. This is what we do. We're always kind of pushing it a little bit. Oh, look what they did. Oh, look what I did. Oh, I'm going to do the next year. This is going to be this. It's this kind of g glorious game, both of, of sort of creative competition and uh, a personal glorious expenditure. How can I take my whatever re re resources I can or the resources of friends of mine who actually make money and like hook up and do it in a, an amazing way? And that to me is just a profoundly important thing to figure out other ways of doing that creative excess other than war, you know, and terribly manipulative popular culture and consumerism and all the other ways we practice sort of useless expenditure. And so there's something really... I find a little hollow about the attempt to kind of plug this culture into a productive, efficient, 
you know, inv- uh, ec- uh, economically sustainable new culture of eco-transformation, which again, I'm for that. I think it's great. But if we think that that's all we're doing, I think we're not only missing something, but we're also letting in too much of that logic, too much of that corporate logic. So, you know, I'm kind of a little little old school on this one. You know, I'm like, well, you know, well, this is all corporations anyway. I heard Larry Harvey and um, Brian Doherty were talking about the green thing. It's like, look, we're all imbricated in corporate culture anyway. All our cars and our water and our food, it all comes through corporations. And it's like, yeah, that's just one dimension of reality. You know, there's another dimension in which we're creating on the fly some kind of other space where something else is allowed to happen that doesn't have a reason. Capitalism, there's always a reason. I can create the most bizarre, weird, freaky, countercultural circus, totally crazy. I put it on the road. I want to brand it. I want to have a revenue stream off it. That's fine. That's what we do. That's the world we live in. I'm not saying that that's bad or evil and we have to, like, destroy capitalism. By, by no means. Get, get me wrong on that one. But... We make an error when we think that that's all that's that's going on, and so I, I'm, it's kind of interesting to see how that works. Uh, you know, you have the green man, and then you have the the crude awakening. You know, this like uh, Derek that's going to like destroy an extraordinary amount of fuel tonight. Uh, you know, yay, glorious. You know, sorry. You know, it's. You know. Yeah, Eric, I've been thinking about this green man thing because I remember last year when they announced it, everybody. You know, the buzz went around because they announced it early, and everybody said, well, that might be interesting. How are we going to do that? And then later on, they announced this, uh, the trade show out there. And like most people, I thought, oh, there's a slippery slope, you know. And until I saw the trade show, which is slightly below the quality of a good high school science fair, you know, or, or a bad high school science fair, you know. So I was really, really relieved to see there wasn't much out there. And, you know, every year the theme is controversial. Half the people don't follow it and have to. And I, I've i never seen such a controversial theme where everybody thought, boy, that's really a good, that's good, good. And I've never seen more people ignore it. To me, it seems like there's no theme this year except the man's not blue neon, you know, and, which is fine with me because, uh, you, you know, I think it's kind of a, uh, absurd to say this is a green event. <laughs> you know, that, however, you know, we are at the first time someone's been arrested for arson in Black Rock City. So there is some <laughs> their history made here anyhow. But it didn't seem like a green event to me. Yeah. Yeah. Any comments at the end, John? I was just going to say it's sort of in the same line that you're saying about people kind of misunderstanding what Burning Man's about. Um, that The general public or the people who d- wouldn't come to Burning Man might view, look at it and view it as this uh, horrible waste, that it's just a horrible waste. And uh, so sometimes I've heard, uh, you know, I think Alex Gray said to me something uh, when he first had heard about the festival is, well, do they have to burn the art? You know, and that, there's that that struggle with, uh, you know, wanting to create and not wanting to, to, to destroy what's being created but that this festival is about both of those things and it is honoring the destructive in a very healthy way and uh, somebody the other night on the playa said to me uh my friend coco said to me that um you know bushco and and the governments and they they've got their burning man also but the difference is they're really burning people when they're dropping uh, bombs on on countries and and that that's the unhealthy way and so if we have this inherent uh, human need to 
be destructive, it seems really, really good and reasonable to have it be a symbolic destructiveness rather than an actual destructiveness. And that that of anything is kind of the most uh, life-affirming and quote-unquote green um, part about this festival is that, that we're not actually killing people through celebrating the destructiveness or, you know, killing plants or killing, you know, we're doing a little harm to the environment, sure, but... Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's great. Great comments. Anything else? Yeah? Thing. The on switch. Um, I guess the term in my mind is uh, uh, efficiency. Uh, I really appreciate, you know, these do-it-yourself tents, for example, uh, that have to survive in these rugged conditions. And somehow I have been appreciating this interest in the green man to take it to the next level uh, in this most extraordinary, say, celebrating the technocratic opportunities that the genius who come here that comes here can offer in terms of techniques that improve our efficiency, our elegance, as we bring our water, we bring our power. Why not do it better? I learned from the people distributing um, the solar, I don't know the company name, so we don't need to name it, um, that uh, Burning Man was using all these diesel generators and way, way overkill. You know, just using tapping 10% of the power they were bringing on and yet burning all the diesel and just totally unnecessary. And, and I do think Burning Man is a smart, bright, creative place. So why not work on it on that engineering, you know, uh, engineering level? So. Yeah, I, I think I totally agree with you. I mean, I, 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 it's, again, it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around because that is part of what why we come back as well is that all of the practical problems that we face and the this competitive need in a way to improve them and I mean that in the best sense not like oh I want to beat them but like God they did it well I want to do that you know we all have that feeling we, oh I didn't bring this or that person had this widget or that solution to this little technical fix and yeah you can ramp that up in a way that, that and it is being ramped up in an extraordinary way and to bring in that that kind of logic the problem I have is that when you are not conscious of what is introduced when that process that feedback loop becomes I'm not going to use the word commodified. I'm just going to talk about when it becomes uh, intimately linked with uh, money and companies. And we all have our own relationships to corporate logic. You know, we're all parasites in some sense. Some of us work deep within it, and we, have, we make our compromises, and we find our soul in the ways we do. Some of people here work very far away from it and can... Af- but it can afford on one level to be dismissive of it, but can generally not afford a lot of other things because they work outside of that economy. And the Burning Man is a remarkable, very, very unusual blend of people with tons of money and people with very little money. And that's one of the key dimensions about the festival. People don't talk about very much. You could call it class. It's not quite the right term. It's more about like economic style or lifestyle. And, you know, it's always, not always, but it's since the mid-90s when, uh, you know, Internet entrepreneurs started to come out here. It's always been a place both of this kind of technological, people who are in this technological excess, this incredible creativity, inventiveness, coming out and interfacing with, like, you know, weird meth heads from, you know, Minnesota who, like, drink beer and ride bikes all the time and don't want to work. You know, and that that dimension is really key. And what I think was... Uh, what I felt was missing in this kind of embrace 
more open embrace was an acknowledgement that there's something really classist in that as well. That even though you know entrepreneurial capitalism allows anybody to start a company, anyone with a good idea, da da da, da it doesn't really work that way. You know that's not how class works. It's not how capitalism keeps its own going. You know, yes, it can happen, but it often doesn't happen. It can happen with art too. You know, you have a total outsider character starts making amazing stuff. It catches on. They're able to make a, a good living off of it. Great. You know, no problem there. But there's also a lot of people who are never ever going to enter into that economy. And that part of the kind of instinctive revulsion I think a lot of people felt towards the, the, the trade show was that it was kind of silencing, demarking, segregating people who are comfortable with entrepreneurial capitalism and the logic of it, the transformative, extraordinary transformative power of it. And I totally support that and agree with it. But I just am, I feel like I'm kind of here on for the other side, for the sense that something is being marginalized and something is being uh, lost by sort of offering that route as kind of the way forward for everyone or for you know for for enough people. So I completely agree with you that it's an extraordinary petri dish to continue to transform, to use the technical challenges and the environmental challenges of the playa as a kind of petri dish to do, develop amazing solutions that can spread virally through the internet, through networks of small, uh, you know, ethically uh, conscious, you know, uh, companies. Great, no problem. But there's something outside of the efficient logic of capitalism. And, you know, this is like a real, a really profound question when you talk about environmental activism. Okay, there are tons of people in the world who are just, that's their number one goal. They're like, we are screwed and all of my efforts are going to be towards making the situation better. But what's funny is if you look at like how those people think about the world, they're in some ways extraordinarily contradictory. On the one hand, you have people who are essentially scientific and technocratic, who see it as a technical problem to be solved with technologies, with new bureaucratic structures, new, you know, uh, all, all sorts of mechanisms in order to engage the fundamental problem that's going on. This is a view that says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say the other thing first. On the other side, we have a kind of profoundly spiritual or at least cultural attempt to create a culture of ecology, whether that's through alternative medicine or through organic food or through a sort of multidimensional, almost poetic relationship with the world, with nature, with animals, with the spirits of the old ones, with ancient ways, with old traditions, and to bring those things back alive as a way to create a more environmentally sustainable or environmentally conscious, ecologically focused uh, uh, way of seeing the world. And in some ways, in some fundamental ways, those two approaches are very divergent. And they're divergent in a way that's sometimes unhelpful for the environmental movement. Because there are people, tons of people with power in the skeptical, scientific, technocratic world who are like, keep that woo-woo stuff far, far away from me as possible. I'm not going to be engaging you with, on that level. You know? And on the other side, if there is not a creative, rich, uh, sustaining, nurturing culture that gives us a framework to encourage us to do these healthier things and to engage with more environmentally sustainable t techniques and approaches, then it's, I don't think it's going to work very well. Or if it does, it looks like some kind of creepy UN green fascism stuff. 
which is definitely a possibility. So both of those things have to happen. And, um, you know, and that's, so that's a good expression of the place that the imagination really plays in a major role. When is the imagination appropriate? And when is it not appropriate? And some of the best organizations and the best companies and the best individuals who are out there working, I mean, people with tremendous productivity and intelligence, the, uh, on the same time, they're able to interface with that rational, technocratic reality, speaking only about solutions, about efficiency, and then on another dimension, you realize that they're plugged into, like, you know, the ancient circle of 13 moon grandmothers or whatever it is, some deep mythic structure that gives them the soul strength to be able to deal with this world, and that Burning Man is trying to do its own version of, of that integration. So maybe you have some ideas on integration. What, what can we do to resolve this dilemma, uh, that we're fit, this green dilemma that we have here on the playa this year? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I, you know, I, I, I tend to not, it's not that I don't think in terms of sol- solutions exactly, but I more feel like what I do is to kind of articulate these dynamics articulate these tensions and pulls in multiple directions. Because the way I look at it is there's tons of people with solutions, specific technical solutions. There's tens of people who have an answer, who have an agenda, who have like, I want to, you know, and if I have an agenda, it's only to like coax you into like my confusion, my attempt to move between different models of reality that don't quite cohere. But my sense is that that's sort of what we do. That's our leaky boat. You know, I I had a great professor in college who was also a you know, a Christian preacher, but a radical black, um, you know, radical Democrat. And he just talked about we're like in a leaky boat. We're going across the river, boat's leaking, we're pouring water, bailing the boat. That, that, that's it. You know, it's like, you know, life is like, you know, it's a Zen guy who talks about it too. Life is like, you know, swimming across a river and getting halfway and then drowning. You know, and so I, I kind of, I'm a little like solution or whatever. It's to, it's to engage and recognize the different dimensions and to begin to integrate them such that we can in our own experience, in our own desire, culturally and individually, to integrate them. But it doesn't necessarily have an obvious solution. It may be for some that 2012 is a a very important, inspiring myth, you know, but that's obviously not going to be the mechanism for, you know, mass transformation in our in our uh, in our culture, so it's holding these things lightly and, and recognizing again, being becoming comfortable with moving in that multidimensional space. As I've been looking around the playa, it seems like we're really doing our best to use up all the oil as fast as we can. <laughs> so if we do that, that'll eliminate a lot of choices. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, and that's a good way also. I mean, that's the kind of almost apocalyptic dimension of it, which is like, look, we're we're going in this direction. We're just let's rage it. I mean, you get, like the idea of like, oh, we're going to conserve and conserve and conserve. It's like uh, it, th- it's much worse than that. It's, we have a tendency to think let's create the new paradigm that, that really make it work, but it seems we just the paradigm's already there. We just have to learn how to follow that the law of nature and live in accordance with that. Yeah. We use it up. We have no more choices. We'll right, and something something will happen. You know. And, uh, but I love that idea that the, I'm glad you brought that up about we, we want to create the new paradigm. We want to hear what the new paradigm is. And there's a, yeah, exactly. And for me, I, I approach that because I am a real heady person and I think about concepts, I think about paradigms. My experience of that problem is that 
the the new paradigm is that there's not a paradigm. Ah, you know, oh, how do I navigate that? I, wait, wait, I need a method. I need a, way, a system, a co- way to control this this confusion, this ambiguity, these multiple dimensions. And so for me, it's like becoming accustomed with that because at a deep level, I do believe in flow. I do believe that there is this kind of Tao moving through even the most chaotic and fucked up situations. But you don't get there by going, this is the Tao. The Tao is to, you know, conserve and live in this kind of lifestyle. It's much subtler and more grand than that. So I really, I really appreciate that. That's What's that? How are we doing at time? Do you want to... Uh, actually, I, I didn't see Mark come in yet, so you're, you're free to go as long as you'd like. Uh, as long as the questions flow, you know. As long as the questions like, you know, flow, I'm we'll happy. Maybe, uh, since I still have the microphone, <laughs> I'd like to do a song for you all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so um, I, I mean, I'm interested in this notion of flow and, you know, going, go, just going with it, but... Maybe the evidence perhaps is there that we are getting into that apocalyptic uh, place. So does that mean we just work with accepting that we may well push ourselves out, you know, before we manage to get through to that point that we don't have more choices and carry on? We may just blip out, right? And we just say, all right, that might happen. And Yeah, for for me, I I can't really... Well... any kind of co- well, go ahead. I, I guess fundamentally, I wonder: Do we actually try and make a choice to navigate towards survival, which is in our organic structure? You know, in terms of a evolutionary piece that the universe is taking us towards. You know, yeah. I think if indeed we have some choice point, I think that's going to happen anyway. I mean, that's the thing: is that that just by the nature of human beings, by their nature of their desire to continue, by you know, like the you know the glorious worship of babies you know it's like what what's you know it's like because we we just instinctively want that forward progression that those desires and needs will manifest solutions to the problem in a variety of ways some of which are very inspiring and progressive some of which are evil nasty answers for an elite you know and there's plenty of elite solutions to this problem that involve die-offs of massive populations. Not intentionally, necessarily. I'm not speaking conspiracy theory. I just meaning recognizing in a triage way that a lot of shit is going to go down and that the best way to keep humanity going are much more focused ways of distributing resources. So there's going to be all sorts of solutions on that on that level, I, I, I believe. And so what I'm kind of suggesting is almost a way to work with that condition to work with that situation. Like, you know, it's again, it's the same kind of thing of thinking about it as like Bardo, Bardo run-through. That maybe what we're all offered here is a kind of collective Bardo run-through. And it might look like coming out the other side or eking by with our leaky boat. Oh, we got new ways of sucking the water out of the leaky boat as we go forward with our leaky boat. And that it ends up being not that different even if it looks totally transformed from the inside. And, you know, I don't know, but it's almost more like, you know, I think some people are drawn towards extraordinary technical solutions. I know a lot of most of my friends are technological kind of people. And I think that there's types of folks who are going to do that. It's not exactly what I do. So I feel like I'm in that system, but offering something a little bit uh, different to keep the richness there, to keep that that larger poem alive and to not have it all collapse into a, a kind of controlled efficiency 
uh, driven by a purely survival kind of logic. It may be the case that that's really what we're supposed to be doing now. But, you know, for me, it, it has to have that deeper dimension. Oh, oh wait, wait. A question is emerging. Have the microphone. There we go. Not sure exactly how much of a question, how much of a comment, and how much of just sort of an opinion seeking. Um, but you mentioned sacrifice a little bit earlier, and there is something, I mean, both in the uh, Northwest culture and in the Abraham story of sacrificing the child, the sacrificing in Vegas of the money at the roulette table. There's a. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure where I'm going, but there's some parallels between all of those different things that the art is sacrificed uh, Monday, you know, the the man being sacrificed prematurely perhaps, but he was saved by the hand of man, the hand of the firefighters 30 right. minutes later. Um, uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly, I'm just sort of like commenting through this. Sure, I mean, we can talk just a little bit more about sacrifice. I mean, one way of looking at the the development or the evolution of human religion is to look at it as an evolution of sacrifice. And that what you do at the beginning is you kill a living being. You know, an animal, maybe a human being. And that as you evolve, you realize that the sacrificial logic can be expressed in subtler ways. And that that's sort of what happens. So that's what you have with the Abrahamic tradition is that once they sacrificed actual animals and they ate the animals and that but at this point, we don't need to do that anymore. It's not because God has changed. It's because history, because we've learned another way of doing that. The I Ching probably comes out of the subtle evolution of sacrifice because what they used to do was to burn, like what you do is you, you put a sacrifice to the gods, an animal, maybe a turtle, maybe, maybe a, you know, a, a beast of the field. And then you were like, well, did it work? The gods like it or not? Well, how are we going to know? Well, they're going to send us a sign. What, what, oh, let's read the cracks on the bones. So there's these enormous stores of tortoise shells from, you know, early, in early China that are the records with little marks that become kind of the origins of Chinese language, commenting on the natural scratches in these tortoise shells of beings that they've sacrificed. And then they, you can again see where I'm going. The evolution is that, wait, if what we really want is to communicate with the gods, why do we need to do it by killing this turtle? Why don't we just find some way of generating these symbols, which are also uh, numbers in, in the I Ching? And so what we end up getting in the I Ching is a way to generate numbers as a sacrificial relationship to the gods. It's just that we don't need to do it with animals anymore. So that's the same idea I started out with, is that there's always this need for a sacrificial relationship, but we do it in different ways. Human cultures find different solutions to the problem, one of which is war. And so we are continuous, that you do see, that it is appropriate to see Vegas that way. It is appropriate to look at Hollywood that way. We may not like that form. We may want to change it. But it is participating in a similar logic to us, even if it looks really alien or weird. Anything else? Comments, questions, queries? Oh, there's one right over here. Okay. 
I think I think there's something about uh, the zeitgeist of the times uh, and environmentalism and being green. If you look at the the Simpsons movie, it's got a green and even anti-government theme. Um, Evan Almighty, you know, it's like oh, the government's got a conspiracy. We know this, but until the higher ups are actually change what they're doing, how are how are our actions going to um, affect us? Oh, yeah, it's definitely, you know, percolating all that there. I mean, like, the whole media space is tr- transforming tremendously, which is another el- a reason to, you know, I hope you, you know, to take this encouragement to take the imagination at once more seriously and more lightly, is that that's what we do with media. With media, we create concretized, largely electronic ways of collectivizing the imagination with a certain point of focus. We all go see this, you know, we all have Star Wars in there. You know, it, it serves the function that myths did in an earlier age. And that the zone of media, with all of its crazy stories and all its absurdity and all its crass stuff, that is partly this kind of technological imagination. Not the same as a spiritual imagination, but a kind of mirror of it. So that looking at media and working in media, I work in, in media or on the edges of it, um, is one of the ways that we kind of engage and learn to play with these imaginative entities. And that that process... And the feedback loop between media realities and memes and ideas and human culture is getting faster and faster and faster and faster to the point that our ideas and images about the way the world works are going to more directly create constructs that do that. And we see that all over the place. The fact that you can go onto a a computer and do a CAD diagram of an object and press a button and print it out into a plastic shape in 10 minutes is a symbol or an expression of a much deeper process of reality creation. And in a way, this is an answer to Jacob's question, that yes, if we are involved in a positive feedback loop of reality creation, let's create solutions, let's do something good, let's create, let's think really hard about how to do this well, absolutely. You know, and that's part of the role that, that media plays in this, in this transformation. Any other questions or comments? Get, you got a mic right there. Thank you. So I'm sitting up again. Thank you. The uh, notion of the green man and fecundity, you know, the, uh, the excess that nature always provides us. And one of the things that we often miss is that virtually anything that comes into creation is also destroyed or changes into something else. And... The uh, let me get this out here. There, there is this notion of generosity, which is one of the the pillars in Buddhism. One of the three major pieces: generosity, uh, um, concentration, and uh, ethical behavior. Sometimes generosity is seen as one of the pieces of ethical behavior, but it's also separated out as a pillar in and of itself. And as a practice, the giving away of things, which you know we're talking about a lot here is the gift culture, uh, immediately pulls the veil away from these things that we think are ours and think they are somehow worthy. And there's the notion that when we give something away, uh, we can never lose it. Whereas if we try to hold something, we can. And when they, when they talk about uh, developing merit, good deeds, 
you know, behaving well, doing things that are nice to people. The, uh, the Northern Indian Himalayan tradition always makes a point of quickly dedicating that merit to all beings because then we can't lose it. You know, if we fuck up, then we're right kind of back where we started. But as long as we've given it away, it's something that we can't lose. One of the notions I have about this whole, and this is only my second year here, but one of the most beautiful parts of this whole gift of this thing happening is this notion that really none of us have to do this. This, this really is sort of an essential, almost, uh, almost mythic act of generosity on so many parts. And just as any intention isn't going to be completely pure, as long as we're, you know, in samsaric realms, you know, it's always going to have ego involvement. It's going to be, you know, can I give this up and have people think better of me? Or, but even in the impure offering of things, there is always that part that has more deeply understood that the essential nature of this stuff is that it isn't ours. Even these bodies aren't ours. Just a comment. No, it's a beautiful comment. Thank you so much. Um, I think uh, one of just one idea to make an interesting connection is to see the relationship between generosity or a gift economy, although generosity is a better term because it's a little bit more open, and sacrifice. That, that in that same idea of refining sacrifice, rather than taking all your all your you know thing and, and burning it for the gods, is you give it to other people. And that that, in a way, and then that, that recognition that pulling the veil back is like the violence in it, except the violence is no longer against the animal that you're sacrificing. It's against your own egoic attachment. Oh, look, ah, oh, oh, what was that? That was the pain, that was the cut of the knife across the throat of that attachment. Uh, and that there is this relationship between, and I, for me, experiencing generosity and encouraging it myself, and I'm no whiz-bang at it, but... To doing that, I've, it's actually been easier for me to grok it as sacrifice than as generosity sometimes. Because generosity is like, oh, uh, do I feel that good? Am I that good a guy? I mean, sometimes I can really be there. But a lot of time there's a lot of resistance and fear. But if I'm like, cut, sacrifice, just see what happens when you throw it out there, then it bounces back in a, in, in a different way. So I think there's a real intimate connection there. And I'm really glad you brought that up as a, another layer of a way of talking about what we do out here, not just useless expenditure, but the generosity is, from a selfish point of view, useless expenditure. Because it, if, if we're coming from an ego place, then we don't expend our wealth. We hold on to it. So to do it uselessly through generosity, through glorious consumption or whatever through demonstration, through spectacle, is a way of getting at that sacrificial logic, which is clearly one of the ways we evolve, culturally, individually, as we move into our, our you know, as we go through life. Can I make one more comment on that? This, this notion of generosity in Southeast Asia is always taken as a practice. And one of the things about generosity is that it doesn't create harm to others or self and that's where you get the difference like this popular notion about codependence where people give away things to cause great harm to themselves and I, I used to be asked uh, when I was part of a large meditation practice tradition where the teachings were always given without cost 
So there was the opportunity to offer something or not. And people would always come up and say, well, how much should I offer? And I said, there isn't a set amount. And they said, well, like, is there a sliding scale? And I said, well, no, it's not a sliding scale either, which, of course, is what we experience here. It's not that, you know, I bring seven gallons of water because I have a good income. But the piece where it's a practice and the piece where it's the balance is I would, uh, you know, suggest that people then maybe offer a little bit more than they're inclined to. If when you go home and you feel that you've harmed yourself somehow, you know, your kid can't eat or the, the, the house gets mortgaged or you just can't rest because you feel like you've done it too much, then you pull back. And if you give too little, then you kind of feel a little sort of constricted and your heart isn't open. And uh, that feels like, sacri- you know, the, the first part feels like sacrifice. The second part feels like selfishness. And it, it's a moving target, just like with everything else. And I think... Uh, there, there is great liberation in playing with that little edge of how much can you give away and be really open-hearted and happy. Well, great. That seems like a, a, a good place to end. And I want to thank you so much. This was amazing. I uh, really, really love it, and I appreciate all of you coming here and, and sharing your attention and your questions. And uh, mo- moving on to more. All right, thanks. And we got to thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for being a part of this. We appreciate it. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And as you might suspect, many of the people who go to Burning Man also find the thoughts they gathered there have helped to change their lives. Also, uh, I think this is a perfect example of what we were trying to achieve with these plyologues, where the talk began with an investigation of the concept of imagination and progressed to a critique of what we actually might be up to on that dusty playa. It was a a wide-ranging discussion indeed. And the ideas keep coming, at least for me. Uh, For example, when Eric was talking just now about the fantastic growth of what he terms the ayahuasca religion, I was reminded of a conversation I had a couple of days ago with a physician friend of mine who told me that a recent episode of the edgy cartoon program The Simpsons featured an ayahuasca experience by the lead character Homer. Apparently they covered it as the ingestion of some powerful chili peppers, but uh, he said the graphics, colors, and lessons Homer learned were without a doubt an ayahuasca experience. Just uh, think back ten years and think about how many people you know who already knew about the vine back then. My guess is that not many of your straight friends had a clue about it, and probably still don't know of it. But now, when you talk about it, you can point to several movies and even to The Simpsons. Personally, I, I don't think this is a coincidence or an accident or anything like that. My personal belief is that the spirit of Lady Ayahuasca is very intentionally infiltrating the consciousness of millions of unsuspecting people. At least that's my hope. Another thing that uh, Eric did in this plyologue, I think, is uh, that he gave a brilliant explanation of the psychology behind the Burning Man Festival, which now prompts me to say a little something about this upcoming festival this year. First of all, if you've never been there or only been there once, I highly recommend giving it a try, uh, if you have the time and resources to do so, that is. But as you know, it, it is very expensive and time-consuming in that you have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks of preparation before heading to the playa. In fact, uh, being a serious burner can almost take over your life. 
and I know it has done that to me a few times. But what I need to tell you uh, about this year's upcoming festival is that I won't be able to attend myself. There are several reasons for this decision to skip the burn this year, and I'll explain them in future podcasts. But the primary reason has to do with my health. As you may have suspected, uh, the reason for this week's podcast being late in coming out was that I had a second bout of the flu that hit me in the past 10 days. Apparently, my respiratory system still hasn't rebounded from the pneumonia that laid me low last fall. As much as I hate to admit it, uh, well, my body just doesn't spring back like it once did. And so I'm going to be ultra-cautious for a while and avoid things like airplanes, crowded public spaces, and that insidious dust that gets into everything, particularly your lungs, at Burning Man. As I said, there are other reasons for me passing on the festival this year, but the thought of breathing playa dust for a week has been the final straw in my decision-making process. I realize that uh, quite a few of our fellow saloners have been looking forward to us all getting together on the playa this coming August, and I sincerely apologize for not being able to make it myself. I do intend to keep you informed as to where you'll be able to connect with our fellow saloners, and I already know about uh, two potential theme camps where that can take place. And I hope this doesn't discourage anyone who is thinking about going to Burning Man this year, but let's face it, uh, I don't think anyone should commit to going to Burning Man just to get to meet someone. It's a huge commitment on your part to go there, and so you'd better have a whole bag full of reasons before setting out in that direction. And then I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Now let's get to a little news from our fellow saloners. First of all, let me send a big thank you to everyone who has been participating in our psychedelicsalon.org blog. Just since the last time we were together here in Cyberdelic Space, there have been comments posted by Ido, Llama2, DR Purple, DR Laura, Dervish Mad Whirler, Synthem, Brandom, Tor25, Sean, Barry F, Tree Wisdom, and Erock X1 who has also distributed uh, several thousand flyers advertising the salon. Hey, uh, thanks a lot, Erock X1. Many of the uh, comments our fellow saloners have posted are actually essays concerning topics in recent podcasts. So far, there have been uh, over 240 comments posted by some of the more than 150 registered users. And uh, over on our forum on thegrowreport.com, there are close to 600 posts and 55 threads. And wait until you check them out. Uh, The topics range from a discussion of the psychedelic nature of the world of Warcraft to the strange death of orange sunshine. So thank you all for keeping the discussion of these podcasts going with some lively and thought-provoking ideas. On the email front, there are uh, several messages that have made it through my gauntlet of spam filters and caught my attention with things that I think uh, all of our fellow saloners might appreciate. First of all, there was this uh, message from James M., who said, among other things, I'm glad you are including a bit from Timothy Leary. I find it quite bizarre that some folks involved in the psychedelic scene would not know who he is, or at least have heard one of his talks or read one of his books. I don't agree with most of what he has to say, but he certainly has a consistent vision. I am more of a Ramdas fellow myself. I would like to hear from Eric Davis, if possible. I quite enjoyed hearing one of the podcasts featuring him, and also I liked his final interview with Terrence McKenna. I find him to be a bit more level-headed than some others, Terrence included. Well, uh, you got your wish today, James, so uh, thanks for mentioning that. And James goes on, 
To expand on the level-headed idea, I think it needs to be said more that anything powerful is dangerous, including sacred medicines. This sort of talk is swept under the rug much of the time as it undermines the cause to some degree and makes it seem like they, those fighting the war on drugs, are right. But I have seen many people who go down the wrong path, abusing powerful drugs and becoming paranoid and delusional. As Terence might jokingly suggest, not everyone can do that as well as him. I don't know where such talk is to be placed in the context of the salon, but I felt it needed to be said, as I know I'm very skeptical of miracle claims. I'm sure you and most of your speakers are as well, but it is not mentioned very much just how wrong things can go. That's, uh, that's really an excellent comment, James, and you are right that uh, many of us, myself included, often uh, sweep aside the dangers associated with psychedelic medicines when they aren't properly used. The world has been uh, littered with psychedelic casualties, uh, including celebrities like uh, Pink Floyd's co-founder Sid Barrett. But there are uh, less well-known casualties as well, like the two friends of mine who died within six months of one another a couple years ago. Both of them were in their 40s and had a significant amount of experience with these substances. Yet they both died uh, due to accidents while improperly using these medicines. And a new potential danger has uh, recently been called to my attention, and that is how uh, an online association with psychedelics may have a negative impact on your future career should you decide to uh, play in the straight default world. Once your name is connected to this work in one or more online forums, it'll be nearly impossible to get Google to forget about it, even if you delete those references. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm still very much a proponent of psychedelics, and I firmly believe that they and they alone hold the key to the future survival of our species. But you should keep in mind that a commitment to this path can definitely close off other avenues for you. In my own case, uh, I once had a nice career as a motivational speaker for corporate gatherings. But once I gave my psychedelic thinking talk at the 2001 Mind States Conference, my agent dropped me like a hot potato, and I never again was invited to speak at one of these events. So be sure that you know what the consequences may be before you get too far out in front with your connection to the psychedelic community. Not everybody needs to be so upfront uh, as I've decided to be, and, and that's great because uh, we also need a lot of people in deep cover where they can spread the word to those who are still laboring in darkness. At least that's my romantic way of thinking about all of this. And that is one of the reasons I only mention our donors by their first name or cyber handle, which is what most people use to post comments, uh, like this one from Dervish Mad Whirler. Cool name, by the way. The Dervish has uh, the following to say about Dr. Timothy Leary. So now I kind of feel sorry for the man, and sorry for me just dismissing him. But I still think that the insights that Leary had are just implications of the knowledge gained by tripping. For me, the light shone a bit more on Terence, may he rest in peace, because Terence McKenna has kind of taken the lessons of the trip to a more elevated level, not just the level of freeing your mind and becoming aware and all that jazz, but to actually use this awareness to create, in the morphogenic field of man, a new paradigm, as he so aptly named that. Those were things I was doing myself before I knew Terence's work, and am still doing today. 
What my point is, is that we completely miss the point of these two minds if we keep thinking that what they incited is better or higher than we ourselves can intuit. The brilliance of those two lies in the exploration of their own minds. Their work should only incite us to become even more brilliant, to let in and through more light. I, without trying to diminish these people's achievements, reckon myself to be an equal, at least, of Dr. Leary and Terence McKenna. And I'm sure that most of the Saloners are that, too. That is very well said, Dervish, and if you read through the comments and posts on our various forums, I think you will come to the same conclusion as Dervish and I have. And that is that uh, many of our fellow Saloners are in the same league as Terence and Tim which ultimately is a great compliment to both of them and to all of the other elders who have paved the way for us. After listening to the 1964 Leary talk, followed by the 1995 McKenna talk, it is quite obvious that psychedelic thinking has come a long way in those three decades. And so it's only natural to expect uh, that the evolution of our human consciousness should continue to evolve and at a rapid clip. I often get the question of uh, who do I think is the next Terence McKenna, and my answer, after giving it considerable thought, is that person is you. You and all of the other members of the psychedelic community who continue to push these thoughts to even greater heights. Another message I received recently came from my good friend Zoe Seven. Here's what he had to say. Hey Lorenzo, Happy New Year. I was finally happy with a concept for my www.backfromthevoid.com website, so it is now online. In the About the Book section, I explain to my readers and potential readers why I went from entheogens to conspiracies, as well as where I'm at today. And uh, any feedback or suggestions are greatly appreciated. In my new blog, I will write similar stuff to what I wrote in the blurb about what's going on in the world and where all of this might be going. I have some info on my new site. Check it out, especially the Palladian and Cassiopeians channelings and what they said 10 years ago or more and which is happening today. Take care and let's keep in touch. Peace, Zoe. Thank you for that, Zoe. Another message I received came from uh, a comment by N8 when he uh, or she joined the Planque Norte mailing list. And I guess I should mention here again that uh, I haven't been able to keep that list active, so you won't be receiving any emails from it, I'm afraid. But uh, in this case, that old forum provided a path for these thoughts to reach me. And this is what N8 had to say. I was wondering why you were hesitant to post any lectures by Tim. He is a pioneer, and although the pressure may have gotten to him around that summer of love period, I think that he really made a lot of progress in understanding what psychedelic agents are about. I also think that he used the powers of light to tap into some darker areas of our collective unconscious. His attempts to become, as Bill Burroughs put it, Johnny Acidseed, were misdirected. I think that his wholesale commercialization of LSD to the general public was a little bit of a revenge tactic. But honestly, it worked. The power structure said, we are afraid of things that you are making our culture understand about itself. So they took away the legal status. His unconscious response must have been something along the lines of, if you truly fear love and understanding that much, then you're going to really have something to fear when my work is done here. Then he turned on the world, which, however irresponsible it may have been, it did in fact change the cultural landscape in an undeniable way. 
Well, that's a very good point, N8, and uh, I'll comment further on my thinking about the good Dr. Leary in the next podcast, which will be another talk from the Leary Archive. And uh, N8, sometime in the next week or so, I'll get a chance to check out some of the amazing work you're doing. Uh, thanks for sending those links. And one last thing. I just now realized that I haven't posted the program notes for last week's podcast, number 128. The reason I mention this is that uh, quite a few of our fellow saloners aren't subscribed to our channel via iTunes, Yahoo, Google, or one of the other aggregators. And that means that uh, they don't know when a new podcast is posted until I get around to posting the program notes with a link to the podcast file. Normally I get the notes up posted within a, a day or so of publishing the podcast via the RSS feed, but in cases like this there sometimes can be a big gap. So if you want to be sure to know whenever a new program is available, the best way is to uh, subscribe to our channel. And you don't have to enable automatic downloading in case that was bothering you. In fact, I use uh, manual download in iTunes and only download podcasts when I'm ready to listen to them. That way they don't pile up on my hard drive when I'm not yet ready for them. So if you aren't already subscribed, you might want to do so by clicking on the RSS feed link either at matrixmasters.com slash podcast or at uh, psychedelicsalon.org. The same RSS feed link is uh, in both places. And if you're using iTunes, you can just search their store for Psychedelic Salon, scroll down to the podcast section, and there you'll find a link for your free subscription to these podcasts. Well, that's about all I have the energy for this week. Uh, in fact, my nose is stopping up, as you can probably tell, so I'll have to get going. But uh, I'll do my best to get the next program out a little earlier uh, in the coming week. And before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you're going to find the program notes for these podcasts, <laughs> once I get them posted, that is. <laughs> anyway, for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.